Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, March 29, 2018, is a Byron Wien lecture on financial history. James Grant, founder and editor of Grant's Interest Rate Observer, and Byron Wien, vice chairman of Private Wealth Solutions at Blackstone, discuss the current state of the American economy. And now, enjoy the podcast. Okay, are we ready to go? Yeah, yeah say something, Byron. <laughs> so, Jim, you're a financial historian. And um, we have a lot going on in interest rates. I was pretty much convinced that the long bull market in bonds was over. Um, that it ended last summer. Um, and that rates were headed straight up. And they did go up. But now we have a situation where the market is rallying significantly almost every day and rates are going down. So can you put the current condition in context? Uh, Let's go back into history and help us understand the trajectory of interest rates in different kinds of environments. Could you repeat that question? (laughs) I don't think so. Well, uh, I'm so glad you asked, Byron. Uh, uh, Interest rates, uh, well, interest rates... um, I am in the interest rate observation field, and right now it is flourishing. For a long time, there were no interest rates to observe, and it was skinny days. Um, uh, But as a rule, there is nothing new under the sun of finance. Everything has a precedent. Uh, First bank robbery, uh, contemporaneous with the first bank, and so forth. Um, We are living under the sun of new things in the promises to pay money. Uh, For example, um, there is a book, Byron, called The History of Interest Rates, a page-turner that perhaps you, too, have by your bedside. Sidney Homer. The History of Interest Rates. I had his picture above my bed. (laughs) 3,000 B.C. to the present. That's 5,000 years of interest rate history. And I I called up uh, the still-living co-author, Richard Silla, at NYU. This was in the summer of 2016, when you will recall, no less than 12 trillion dollars equivalent was invested at interest rates, nominal rates of less than zero. In other words, you paid them for the privilege of their borrowing your money. Consider that. Well, I asked, I said, Dick, I've read many, but not every page of your magnificent narrative. Tell me, in 5,000 years of interest rate history, was there ever a time in which a substantial volume of government debt was priced to yield less than nothing. And he thought and he said, no. That is a singularity in our times. How much is it? It's about a third, right? Yeah, you can can go your whole career and never see a 5,000-year event once in 5,000 years. (laughs) Uh, The Bank of England reports that uh, uh, the the yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury that was recorded in the summer of 2016, Byron, that's one point, what, three six or something. You can scarcely see it. 1.36 was the lowest 
such yield on a, uh, a f- the foremost example of, of a sovereign bond, that is the, the world's uh, top credit, it was the lowest such yield in 743 years. That was a positive yield. So interest rates, we can safely say, are low. And, um, and we must ask, Byron, whether they are low on their own merit or whether somebody pushed them down and stomped on them. Well, let me answer that for you. Okay? Yeah. And have you react to that answer? Okay. In, uh, in 2008, the combined balance sheets of the major central banks of the world, the Federal Reserve, the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of Japan, were $3 trillion. Today, they're $15 trillion. I would argue that the expansion of the balance sheets of the world's central banks have flooded the financial system with money, expanding price-earnings ratios, and keeping interest rates low. So all of us who have done well in the stock market, of course, attribute that to our own brilliance. (laughs) But in fact, it's the central banks that have made us rich. And now the central banks are reversing that. We know the Federal Reserve is going to not only be raising interest rates, but shrinking the size of its balance sheet, which has gone from $1 trillion to $4.5 trillion. We know the European Central Bank is talking about tapering. So far, uh, Japan has not done that, and Britain doesn't really matter anymore about anything. So uh, uh, We'll get back to that one in a moment. <laughs> okay, so um, am I right in thinking that we're headed for serious trouble? You know, moreover, let me give you an overlay on this. The budget deficit was running in the last numbers I have were for November, and that was a $683 billion annual number. Now, with the Trump tax cuts, we're supposed to be talking about the economy in the age of Trump. With the Trump tax cuts, that could add about $300 billion to that, putting us at $1 trillion uh, in budget deficit on a $20 trillion economy, or 5%. So we're, this, the, the Treasury is going to be borrowing more. At the same time, the big buyers of Treasuries, um, uh, the, the Federal Reserve, uh, China, and Japan, are going to be buying less. Now, where I went to school, if an issuer is putting out more of a kind of paper and the traditional buyers are buying less, you would think that the price of, or the, the, the yield on that paper would have to go up. Have I got it right? Well, there's no, there's no, as we know, there's no have to in yeah. finance. Uh, there are probabilities, there are likelihoods, there are hunches, and there are uh, prejudices. Uh, there are states of mind, and there are, and and uh, we all have a view of the future, which uh, about which we'll know more in about fifteen years. Um, now, I, I say by way, of, I'm going to give you an historical example. I'll say by way of preface that um, historians uh, have uh, many charms, and, and some of them write well too, uh, but few of them are rich. 
so uh, with that understanding about the value of historical precedent in speculating in the stock market, here goes. Okay, so uh, uh, interest rates have tended, have tended uh, to move in generation length patterns. Uh, very, I'm not sure if any other financial asset uh, exhibits that same tendency. Rates tend to go up for 25, 30, 35 years, and they tend to decline over the same lengthy span of time. Amazing, but it, ha- it has happened. Not to say it must happen in the future. Uh, in 1981, um, uh, a great levitation of rates ended. Bond yields, interest rates, had been rising since 1946. Uh, it was the longest and most consequential bear market, meaning falling prices or rising rates of interest. The longest such bear market, uh, or certainly one of the longest, uh, on record. But when that bear market began in 1946, it began from a level of about two and a quarter percent on long-dated treasuries. And Byron, ten years later, 1956, that yields only up to three and a quarter. So the tempo for the musicians in the audience, was kind of uh, adagio. And uh, it accelerated to kind of a moderato. And then uh, towards the end, Allegro Vivace. It went from 10% to 15%, seemingly in a heartbeat. But the initial rate of rise was very deliberate. In fact, so deliberate, you could not have made a penny by betting on it. So among the many things we don't know is, is assuming we're correct, which is a, a slightly flattering assumption, but assuming we're correct that the great decline in rates ended in the summer of 2016, uh, we don't yet know, and nor do we have much of a way of telling how quickly that will be reversed. Well, it's already confused us because uh, right now um, rates have actually come down as the stock market has roared ahead. Well, this is, Byron, this is one day. I mean, (laughs) No, I mean, you know, we had a 10-year Treasury uh, uh, ticket three, I think. And no, it never got to three. But it, it has, Byron, the yield has doubled from 1.36 to 2.7-something uh-huh. in the space of less than two years. That's, that's, that is a pretty brisk rate of rise, certainly compared to the 1946-81 experience. Um, so, I mean, the, 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 uh, but I think that as consequential as the level of rates might seem, the consequences of those rates are still more important. People have, have built their commercial and industrial and financial lives around artificial interest rates. I say artificial because um, I'm of the persuasion, at least, that they didn't get there by themselves. Uh, they were pushed and then stomped on by the world's central banks. But the conditions that I outlined uh, just a few minutes ago would argue for much higher rates. I mean, if, if we're going to have a borrower borrowing more and we're going to have the buyers of securities buying less, you would think rates would go well, up. You well, would, you would think, and you would, I mean, there are um, uh, interest rates. So how do you know if they're high or not? Well, one way is by uh, comparing the rate of depreciation in the purchasing power of the money with the level of rates. That is to say the rate of inflation against the rate of interest. Uh, you know, a bond is simply a promise to pay money. But, you know, what is money? And is the money any good? Uh, so uh, over the course of time, uh, say the last 50 years or so, uh, investors have demanded 
uh, a rate of interest over the rate of inflation of what, 2.5% or so, call it on the 10 year security. Mm-hmm. That's 10, 2.5% real rate of interest. Well, now the rate of interest in, you know, just, just to look at it, just in nominal terms, is what, 2.7 something. And the rate of inflation as measured, perhaps uh, liberally, is uh, a little less than two. So the increment over the appreciation of money you're earning is, is very negligible in historical terms. That's one way of looking at it. Another way of looking at the rate of interest is what's the utility of borrowed money in a commercial enterprise? What is the rate of profit you can generate by borrowing a dollar? And to look at the, um, uh, the earnings produced by uh, the S&P 500, you'd, you'd say that the, that the rate that the, you know, the utility of borrowed money is fairly high, and yet the cost of that borrowed money is very low. In Europe, um, you, know, you all know what, what junk bonds are. They're, they're, they're promises to pay issued by companies that are judged to be speculative, that is, the companies that um, are somewhat precariously financed, uh, who have a, uh, a not uh, uh, overly long expected life. That's a speculative great company. Uh, we call them junk bonds, these securities. Um, and uh, uh, we have lived to see, just uh, as recently as a few months ago, we have lived to see in Europe, in denominated euros, we've, we have lived to see a speculative grade security yield zero point something. Right. Now, now, that is a 5,000-year first, too. That's because the bank, um, the, the, the Europe's own Federal Reserve, is called the European Central Bank, um, has been buying uh, bonds by the tens of billions of euros every month. And in so doing, they, the bank has distorted interest rates uh, pleasantly. So they've pushed them down, causing asset prices to rise, causing speculative juices to flow. And that's lovely for as long as it lasts, but it leaves in its wake great distortions. Well, the stock market has certainly responded to that. And we have a bull market, pretty much the likes of which we've never seen. You know, I think uh, when Trump was elected, uh, and we're here at the, the probably 77th and Central Park West is the vortex of anti-Trump feeling <laughs> um, uh, in, in San Francisco would be California and Van Ness, I think. But um, if you really look at what Trump has done, um, and not what he's tweeted. Um, he's cut taxes, he's dismantled regulation, and uh, he's promised to uh, revitalize our infrastructure. And the stock market has really responded very favorably. And you would think people would be flocking to the United States to invest, and maybe they are. But the dollar has been weak. Can you explain that? I mean, because... Interest rates may be low, but the dollar has been weak. And since they have negative rates in Europe and negative rates in Japan, uh, I would think that people would be buying our bonds and the dollar would be strong, especially since the economy is growing at 3% and it's not growing at 3% in any other major developed country. So explain the dollar to me. Uh, Yes, uh... Well, the dollar is a, uh, a piece of paper of no intrinsic value that passes for good money the world over. It is the, uh, the Coca-Cola of monetary brands. 
It has behind it uh, the world's greatest arsenal, and I would contend the world's greatest constitution. It has behind it a very formidable history, and it is indeed the beacon of mankind's hopes, the best hopes. All of that uh, almost goes without saying, but I just said it. Um, However, uh, uh, there is a cost to buying American securities if the America's dollar is not your... Biden, are you listening? This is very important. (laughs) There's a a cost to buying dollar-denominated securities if you are European or Japanese. That cost is hedging your currency exposure. And uh, uh, there is a little tiny... Not so tiny, actually. There's a money market interest rate called LIBOR, London Interbank Offered Rate, that has supplanted the federal funds rate as the important money market interest rate in dollars. And that rate has been going up and up and up, um, much higher than the federal funds rate now, like 2.35 or something last time I looked. So if you are in the business of buying somebody else's currency and you feel you must hedge it, that particular rate of interest is raising your cost of owning dollar-denominated bonds. So to the eyes of a foreigner, our higher yields don't look so high. That is one, uh, one answer, I think, to a very good question. But, you know, the, 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 the flows of funds here and there and hither and yon you know, is beyond complexity. We only know after the fact, if then, uh, where, they, where, these, where this money has come from, where it's gone. And we don't even know then what the motives were of the people who sent it there and back. So, so many things, uh, Byron, we actually don't know. Uh, well, there are a lot of things I don't know, but you're supposed to know them. Uh, <laughs> well, together, ladies and gentlemen, together, I, should, I, should, I, don't, I don't mean to make a big claim, but together, Byron and I have uh, 325 years' experience on Wall Street. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's say we give up on dollars and don't want to own them um, and want to own Bitcoin. Is that a good idea? Uh, <laughs> No, it is, it is not a good idea. Uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, Bitcoin to me is a little bit like soccer. It's fine for many people. I just don't get it. Um, uh, now, uh, Bitcoin may be seen, I submit, as Silicon Valley's uh, call for help in the face of the, uh, the monetary experiments that have been going on for the past 10 years. Uh, very smart people, not especially schooled in economics, therefore not indoctrinated with modern economic notions, looked at what the central banks were doing and said, what is that? They can materialize dollars, yen, euros with the tap of a computer keyboard. Byron mentioned this expansion of central bank balance sheets, meaning only that currency in the sum of 15 trillion or so or so has been materialized without effort. The cost of production has been zero. So people have created currencies that are stateless and, to be sure, have other advantages. Uh, a couple of economists recently have announced that they were creating a Bitcoin without the disadvantage that, was, that it could be traced and it was taxable. I felt like telling that's <laughs> you're missing the point. That's <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Bitcoin is competing against fiat currencies, meaning currencies issued and whose value owes only to the stamp of the government that prints them. That's a fiat currency. They're all fiat. 
So Bitcoin competes with them. It also competes with gold bullion. Now, to me, as a gold bug, oh, sorry, as a student of monetary history, um, gold has like a 3,000-year a, a warranty that it's not going to zero. Okay, I and, can accept and, and, that. And Bitcoin has no... Bitcoin, um, yeah, it doesn't. So uh, that's my view. So should we be buying gold no. here? Oh, yes. Hmm? Uh, let it be said, I might have said that uh, at almost any other time you asked it. Uh, this is no warrant as to the immediate speculative prospects for gold, but gold to me is an investment in monetary disorder. It's not a speculation about it because we have it, nor is it a hedge against it because we have it. I define monetary disorder as, an, well, an example of it would be an improvisational MO in which the central bankers experiment in unprecedented ways uh, to the ultimate, ultimate detriment of people who look to markets for price signals and not for the evidence of repression of prices. And um, I think that what we have embarked upon since the year 2008 is terrifically dangerous. And, but we have become acclimated to it. We've become anesthetized. You know, uh, way back when, 2009 or 10, somebody wrote a letter to the editor of the Financial Times. And QE, this phrase, quantitative easing, had been in the news, and it was all rather mysterious, but it presently became to be a commonplace. What it meant was the central banks materializing currency on a computer keypad, and with that newly conjured slug of money buying things like bonds or stocks, that phrase became commonplace. So the correspondent said, Dear FT, at long last I understand the meaning of the phrase QE. I get that. What I no longer understand is the meaning of the word money. And I think, that's, I think that was that's, that sentiment, that conviction, that, that question was the impetus for the launch of such things as Bitcoin and Litecoin and the rest of them. But to my mind, at least, they're reinventing a wheel that has a, uh, a great uh, uh, showing in actual monetary history and not in theory, and furthermore, is rather on the outs as an asset. I bet among your institutional clients... If so you if suggest- you were... If, if you and I were Federal Reserve governors at that time, in 2008, and it embarked on this extraordinary period of monetary expansion, you would have voted against it. Yeah. And, and so... You, you know, that's why I'm, among the other reasons why I'm not on the Federal Reserve Board, Byron. No, uh, that's the only reason. <laughs> no, but I mean, think, let's think about it. I mean, it was an expansion by four and a half times of the Federal Reserve balance sheet. And it produced a rate of growth that was less than in previous cycles. So if we hadn't done that, what would the economy have been like? In other words, even with all this monetary expansion, we had very feeble growth, 1.8% growth or thereabouts during that period, uh, which was a snapback from the most serious recession that we had since the 1930s. Well, Byron, is it not possible that, uh, that the rate of growth as feeble as it was occurred not in spite of that monetary uh, effort, but perhaps because of it? Um, it seems to me that you can think about uh, genuine, you know, free-range, farm-to-table, non-GMO, actual real interest rates 
Um, think of it as kind of the shot clock in basketball that, 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 uh, uh, that impels action. You can't just pass the ball around. So it, in, in commerce, in, in finance, um, interest rates pitched substantially above the rate of inflation are, are expensive. You, know, you have to do something with the money. Um, so there's been uh, this, this kind of uh, uh, this torpor of the economy, I think, uh, economists mostly don't ask, but perhaps to some degree it is the consequence of these very rates that people say have been simulatory. For example, there's a, uh, somebody, uh, there's, there's a phrase now that's, cu- that's current on, on Wall Street, it's a, a word, that's, it's a zombie. It's, to be sure, it's current also in Hollywood. Um, but zombie companies are companies as defined uh, that cannot service their debt out of operating income. For technicians in the audience, earnings before interest and taxes are insufficient to pay the, uh, the lenders. Those companies are being sustained through additional debt. Now, 14% of the companies in the broadly defined S&P world, S&P 1500 or something, are zombies. And something like 75% of the companies that are issuing equity and IPOs uh, are showing net losses under generally accepted accounting principles. So there, there's, uh, I think that these interest rates have done on balance a great deal of harm. And, and, um, and now how do we get out of them? So let us say, Byron, for instance, and this is uh, uh, just a little mind experiment, what happens if there is an unscripted inflation? Inflation has been running at 2% or thereabouts for a long time. People have come to be very complacent about it. Maybe they should be. Maybe Jeff Bezos himself is toxin against anything resembling inflation of the 70s. But let's say you know, there's so much uh, happens. Uh, Byron makes uh, a living, among other ways, in enumerating 10 surprises for the new year. And they have been mostly either provocative or on the money, sometimes both. So Byron is, is, is he wouldn't sure put it this way, but he's in the surprise business. So surprise is, is what moves markets. It's what introduces the kind of the steel and the poetry into Wall Street. So what happens if there's a, an, an unscripted inflation such that the Federal Reserve becomes the problem and not the solution, right? So it, it has to tighten money and raise interest rates in the face of a falling stock market and a weakening bond market. Well, that's, that's, is that allowed? Well, it's happened, right? Well, it, happened know, it during, hasn't happened it's yet. Happened, it's happened in our careers plenty of times. It's happened plenty of times, and it probably should, something like it should be happening now. Um, but inflation is not going up, uh, and earnings are going up, and the economy is strong. And investors are putting money in the market every day at a pretty they, well, vigorous they, they, rate. They, they forgot Tuesday and Wednesday. <laughs> but Byron, let me, let, me, let me ask you this. Um, uh, what uh, you deal with, with at very top levels of professional Wall Street. And how is professional Wall Street handicapping the likelihood of something out of the clear blue, like a, like a, like a 5% or a 4% inflation rate? Uh, a black swan event, or like that. A four, four, Wall Street is assuming that inflation is going from 2 to 3, at worst case, and not beyond it. In your experience, how have Wall Street's worst cases fared as defining the worst? Well, you know, the, the 
In my experience, Wall Street is not a good... Nobody can predict the future. That's, that's the future, what I'm... The future doesn't even exist. <laughs> nobody can predict the future, and I've earned a living for a long time trying to do it. Um, but right now, people are assuming that what we're seeing is what we're going to get. And what I'm trying to frame here is the fact that conditions are changing, that the Fed isn't going to be um, buying as, or uh, is, go- is going to be rolling off its balance sheet, that the, uh, the Treasury is going to be issuing more securities, that the credit conditions out there are worsening, and that interest rates are likely to go up. They may not go up because suddenly everybody might decide they're going to buy U.S. bonds. But if they do go up, stocks compete with bonds. And if interest rates go from above 3%, if the 10-year goes to 4%, the environment for the stock market is not favorable. And that could happen. Do you agree? Yes, I do. Now you are we, are we supposed to agree? By the way, I think. no. Well, yeah, we're supposed to agree some of the time and not agree. Other. But 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 in reading Grant's Interest Rate Observer, you know my feeling is that you're warning us that that's going to happen. Is that a fair assessment? Well, I I I do. Um, I only wish I'd been here forty years ago. I was so much more certain of the future. Um, <laughs> But for what it is worth, I believe that uh, uh, the cycle in rates has turned. And I believe that companies and individuals who have become accustomed to and indeed who have structured their finances around almost literally unprecedentedly low interest rates will have to make adjustments. And those adjustments in many cases will be jarring. Um, I think, for example, Tesla is an example of how Wall Street bestows its favors, how the central banks bestow their favors, only to withdraw them at the least opportune moment. So Tesla has run into a bunch of trouble with respect to its own operations. Uh, It's missing deadlines. Its uh, its cars no longer seemingly have the undifferentiated approval of those who have the uh, last word in the quality of automobiles. But it has been borne aloft as Tesla, I say, through the superabundance of bank credit that you mentioned. Ultimately, very, very low interest rates. Last September, perhaps, Tesla came to market to, to borrow money. And, of course, people were just enchanted to be able for the privilege of journaling Elon Musk uh, their funds. And they did that. They, they earned all of 5.3% per annum on something like an, was an eight-year security um, and uh, they regarded it as, as, as certain a thing as, as the Model 3. It was just that good. Okay, so time passes, and it turns out the finances are indeed just as the numbers say they are on the income statement, as to say, uh, very problematic. Um, and uh, these bonds today, which came at 100 cents on the dollar virtually, now are, last time I looked, were at 85 cents on the dollar So Tesla has been the beneficiary not only of very, very low-priced credit, but also of the the state of mind that low-priced credit induces. You know, I I think that we're of the same mind about this, Byron. People uh, in the uh, economics world talk about 
behavioral finance, behavioral finance as if it was a separate and distinct department of investing. Byron, these are people we're talking about. It's all behavioral, right? Well, at the end of January, uh, I look at a series of sentiment indicators, and they were more positive than they had ever been in history. And I remember... Is that good or bad? Well, I remember going into a, uh, the morning meeting at Blackstone and saying, um, the market is incredibly vulnerable because people are so enthusiastic that almost any incident that takes place could turn the market sharply downward. Uh, earlier in the year, one of the 10 surprises had been that the market would have a 10% correction, uh, I believed, in the first half. So in February, we had the 10% correction. It really you know, came spontaneously uh, out of a, uh, uh, an employment report where average hourly earnings jumped uh, unpredictably from 2.5% to 2.9%. Can't have that. Uh, and everybody got worried about it. Can't have the working stiffs making too much money. It's bad for something. Right so at any rate, but then the market went down 10%, and everybody said, well, there it is. Wien got his 10%, and now the market can go up again, and the market has basically gone up again. But we haven't purged the optimism. Investors think they can buy common stocks in the United States with impunity, they are going to make money. They don't see any of the warning signals that you're concerned about. They are not, or maybe they see them, they talk about them, they think about them, they have some fear about them, but they're not thwarted from becoming more fully invested. You know, uh, uh, we talked earlier about uh, the recurring cycles in financial history and how you really can't bet on them or from them, but they do uh, provoke thought and they do remind us about the, uh, about the patterns of human behavior which don't change so much over, the time, over time. Almost exactly 300 years ago, there was a, there was a, a Scotsman named John Law who, uh, uh, who came to the continent of Europe. He had to leave, actually, because he killed somebody in a duel. So he, he, found, he was in Europe. <clears throat> he makes a lot of money gambling. He's a very, very smart Cookie, uh, almost smart enough to be on the Federal Reserve Board if you live it. And uh, great at metal math uh, and great at economic theorizing. And he conceives a system whereby uh, the government uh, issues paper currency and keeps the rate of interest at 2% only. And under this system, uh, money would be in sufficient uh, plentitude uh, to stimulate business activity, and to raise up the value of land and of the king's domain, some of which were depressed owing to Louis XIV's wars and taxes. So he did this, and for a time it was fabulous. John Law was the toast of Europe, for a time the richest man in Europe. It didn't work when the money he had created began to seep out of the banks in which it was housed into the real economy and began to finance an inflation. Money began to leave France and to seek out the safety of the precious metals. Law tried to raise the rate of interest, but in so doing, he precipitated a panic, and the shares of his pet company, the Mississippi Company, collapsed. That was the great Mississippi bubble. 
It was almost exactly 300 years ago, and uh, Edward Chancellor, a financial historian who wrote about this for grants, points out that, in essence, in outline, this was essentially the program of the central bank since 2008. Um, so I think this is kind of a first of the New York Historical Society. You know, the, the, uh, the, the tip that John Law's program is ours. Well, Jim, comment on the, on the, the uh, you know, Tesla is not one of the FANG stocks. But do we have, the market has been concentrated. A, lo- a lot of the performance, as much as 33% of the performance of the market has been accounted for by a handful of stocks. Yeah. You know, yeah. and are they, you know, you, you talked about this, the conditions in Tesla, but are Facebook, Apple, okay, Amazon? Let me tell you a story about that. Okay. This is great. So um, the year is 1996. This is, I'll get around to it. Um, <laughs> the year is 1996, and uh, we at Grant's. Um, uh, look at Coca-Cola. Fortune magazine's most admired company of the year. Uh, the chairman of Coke, a swaggering fellow, uh, uh, a master of all these surveys, uh, has an FAQ in the annual report. Says, the question, would you ever consider not buying um, Coca-Cola common stock in the open market? No, we would never would because uh, as long as securities laws allow us to do it, price doesn't make any difference. The value is intrinsic. All right. So we, I said, this, this can't be so. The stock was at 39 times earnings, 25 times book value. Was the, it, was the dark, it was the Facebook of its day, right? Okay. Mm-hmm. So I call up a very good investor friend of mine in Boston, Seth Klarman. I say, Seth, is there anything that can get in the way of Coca-Cola? He says, uh, I don't know. It's, a, it's not really good for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the stock... Doubled and a half from the time we... The headline was sell Coke. It went up two and a half times. And then it went down for 14 years because it wasn't good for you, because we went into a phase of our, you know, of our culture in which people actually started drinking water. You know, what's that about? But <laughs> They bought it in bottles, Byron. Can you believe that one? Um, but this is apropos of Facebook. Is Facebook good for you? I know it's a really expensive stock that everyone loves. Everyone owns it. Um, so I think there's a, that's the parallel I would invoke for these stocks that are so well-loved and seemingly indestructible. Well, I've just reviewed the questions that have come in from the audience. Any of them and fit, they, they, fit, for, fit and, to print? They're very good questions, and they are here-and-now questions, right. and they relate to the Trump administration. We haven't talked much about the Trump administration. You know, I, I was thinking, Jim, if you, if you look at our board of trustees here at the New York Historical Society, we're, um, we're deficient in real estate expertise. And I don't know how much longer Trump is going to be in Washington. Um, you know, maybe he'll be out in 2020 or 2024. This is, this is virtue signaling, ladies and gentlemen. Mm-hmm. What I'm thinking about is I'm in a position to lob in a feeler to Trump <laughs> Let's see if he might like to serve on the board. Is that a good idea? I think he misses the real estate business. <laughs> so would you like working with him? Oh, I mean, I... In uh, 30 years ago, Grant's interest rate observer uh, had a couple of stories about Donald Trump that were all about his real estate business, and we were bearish on it. And we identified the, pre- the future president as a millionaire, the kind of millionaire who may not have money. That was, we thought he was over leveraged and vulnerable. 
But I voted for him, in full disclosure, as registering a short sale against the alternatives. I actually voted for Melania. Um, so I am not going to take part in this particular... Uh, well, I mean, I, let me just say, I think he ought to be judged on what he does. Believe me, I've got no... I'm not... No, I don't, I'm not, uh, I'm not a... Um, an admirer of the individual, but I am prepared to at least uh, see what he can achieve. In well, let's just cover that. If you judge him on not on what he tweets, and but on what he does, the economy is growing at 3%. Interest rates are low. Uh, inflation so far is still low. Um, and uh, the it's, mood it's, it's, in Washington of course, it's has not shifted. All, it's not all about finance and economics, of course. I, yeah. Um, yeah, the move in Washington, I mean, if Hillary had been elected, taxes might be higher, regulation might be more uh, severe. Uh, so uh, you could argue that he's uh, really improved uh, the pro-business attitude of, of government. Well, here's the, the great paradox of the first year of the Trump administration was the following, the, the unlikely constellation of three things. Boom time equity valuations. This was... Candidate Trump's big, fat, ugly bubble. Uh, so boom time equity valuations. Depression level interest rates. Interest rates, especially in 2016 into 17, were lower in many cases than they had been in the Great Depression. So depression level interest rates and graveyard volatility. So as soon as Trump got elected, we, we, I, I said, this man is the avatar of tail risk. He is... He is um, you know, kind of walking nitroglycerin with respect to the unexpected. He's, that's a mixed metaphor, ladies and gentlemen. The first, second draft would not have that in there. Um, but lo and behold, this is the paradox of markets. This is why markets are so flummoxing, so fascinating, and so humbling, is that what the avatar of tail risk delivered for 12 months was utter peace and quiet. He was the avatar of tranquility. Registered volatility was the lowest it has ever been registered at. Trump? Yes, it happened. So with respect to the future, I mean, like, uh, who knows? Okay, well, let's, let's move from <laughs> the theoretical to the practical. All right. Tariffs are going up. Yep. And um, people are worried about a trade war, particularly with China. What do you think? I would be more concerned if I believe that the president actually had a strategy. I think that he is as improvisational as our central bankers. I think he moves from, uh, uh, from tactic and he's like a stick-and-move guy in boxing. You, you, just, you, just, uh, you, don't, you don't know what he's about. So he's not a doctrinaire anything. He is, he is all about the visible achievable outcome, it seems to me. Uh, of course, one can't foresee. This phrase, the foreseeable future, is one that uh, I would scrub from the language. But he thinks he can foresee the future, and actually, of course, he does. And he's constantly shifting in his tactics to try to achieve the ideal outcome. So I don't think he's a doctrinaire anything, let alone a doctrinaire um, Protectionist. I think he is surrounded, or at least he has one aide who is a doctrinaire protectionist. But for those who prefer free trade, the good thing is the president doesn't listen to anybody, listen to anyone anyway. So you think tariffs should be raised? No. 
Hmm. I think uh, free trade is... Uh, so you're a free trader. I am indeed. Yep, I am. And, and, and Trump is... And, and the whole Republican Party behind him is moving against free trade. Well, I think that the Republican Party ought to look itself in the mirror and ask what it stands for. The, the trouble with, can, with candidate and then President Trump is a, uh, a, a lack of stated principal conviction. What, you know, what do we stand for? The Republican Party once stood for fiscal probity. The fiscal, um, you should know, and perhaps you do know, that um, Byron, that uh, in the next fiscal year, if all goes according to plan, which it so often does, next fiscal year, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury together will offer to the market more government securities, measured as a percentage of GDP, more government securities than any year since 1945. This would be in year, what, 10 or 11 of at least a magnificently lengthy expansion, if not a vibrant one. So an unemployment rate of four-something. And I mean, this is, not, uh, uh, this is not the grapes of wrath. And yet we are running, uh, as measured through prospective treasury securities supply, we are running a fiscal policy that is the most profligate since the last year of the Second World War. What is this? And I mean, with this, the silence on the part of the uh, party of, uh, of uh, Warren G. Harding, who, by the way, balanced the budget and who strove for peace in the world. He's kind of a laugh line in the world of professional historians. But this, is the, this to me, at least, and who asked me to talk about politics, is the legacy, the true legacy of the Republican Party, the true, the true standard of the GOP, but it is nowhere to be seen in Washington. So I'm not sure whose candidate will allow one to register a short sale in the establishment next time. Well, according to my calculations, never before in history have we been at 3% growth, full employment, and um, running a a budget deficit of some material size, and uh, and we put through a fiscal stimulus program. Um, that is the definition of well, profligacy. Well, it's a wartime program. No, but, but I mean, in peacetime, we've right. never done yep. it. Yep. We've never done it. Nobody's ever done it. And yet, the stock market is making an all-time high. And that, that's well, just well, a well, short term. The stock, the stock market is, is, is in business to confound us, right? I mean, it, The stock it, market was put on worth by God to make fools of the greatest number of people. Correct. <laughs> Thank you for the clarification. Um, but you know, the, the stock, look, look, oh, okay, so in 1971, Richard Nixon imposes another peacetime first, wage and price controls. August, what is it, 12th or something, 1971, gets on, you know, he... Uh, he and uh, go off the gold standard. Yeah, I know, it's a sore point around the house. Uh, <laughs> but he, he preempts, what, bonanza of all, that's, that was the worst part of it. So he pre- preempting, but now he announces an end to the Bretton Woods regime, a gold standard, and um, peacetime wage price controls. And the stock market went crazy to the upside the next day. But it made a high. Yeah. And then we went into a very significant bear market. Okay, so don't be, don't be so impatient, Byron. You'll get your bear market. <laughs> I don't want a bear market, <laughs> but what I'm saying is the kinds of things we're talking about are the things that make a bear market. Yeah. Let, me, let me give you a longer-term thing. Uh, Trump 
You know, one of the most serious problems we have in the United States, I've got papers all, you know, in my office on this, um, is inequality. Nothing is being done about inequality. Let me give you a fact. Next year, 2019, the Chinese will be spending more on research and development than the United States. Now, think about that. The United States is a high-cost producer. The only way we thrive is through innovation. China is in a position to steal or take away our innovative leadership. They are determined to do that. People worry about where they are on trade. They're going to try to beat us in the laboratory. You have to, you have to, I think you have to adjust for the quality of the spending on the one hand in an economy in which people spend in order to generate profits. On the other hand, economy in which people spend to satisfy the party's five-year plan. And I would say that a great deal of those renminbi, as the Chinese call their dollars, are like uh, trickling out into places like uh, Zurich and uh, other financial capitals of the world. I mean, this money is leaking. I mean, I, I don't think that the, that the quality of the outlays on R&D in... Okay, maybe in, you're right, but let me give you a couple of facts. You're the one who got thrown off Wall Street week because, because once you said, uh, let's not talk about opinions, let's talk about facts. In 2012, <laughs> in, in 2012, um, 2012 the, China, uh, the five fastest supercomputers, the U.S. had three, um, and China had none. Today, uh, of the five fastest supercomputers, we have two, they have two, and Switzerland has one. So I can tell you they're making progress. And I can tell you they're making progress in biotechnology, too. Mm-hmm. Everybody thinks the Chinese are scientific copycats. They have been, but they are not now. Byron, everything you say about China today was said uh, uh, with just as much force and just as persuasively about Japan in the mid to late 80s. Japan was going to own everything that Donald Trump didn't own. That was the storyline. Uh, I, I think the situation is very different. It's the, oh, it is the same with respect to the financial underpinnings of these ostensible Asian miracles. That, that I agree with. I agree that, that the one problem China has, and it's a significant one, is that the non-performing loans on their, their banks are, are very significant. It, 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 that's... That is the biggest financial problem. The biggest problem China has to me is that it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a communist society. I mean, what, what part in, 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 a, in an economy of ideas and of services and of scientific innovation, in what part does the free expression of ideas without fear and without favor, is that important? If it is important, China's way, way in the back end of that bus because it doesn't allow it. And that, to me, it, it, uh, I, I think that China is, uh, is a great big bubble, a great big red bubble. Well, a lot of people are thinking that what's happening in Washington is wrongheaded, and it's all going to change in November because the Democrats are going to take at least the House and maybe even the Senate. Do you think that's going to make a difference? Well, if the Democrats take the House, they will presumably vote to impeach the president. That might make a difference. I don't think they're going to impeach the president. Do you? Well, they could vote to impeach him. Hmm? I don't know, but, but uh, uh, perhaps a little bit more directly to the topic at hand, I would say that, uh, uh, that 
uh, Donald Trump, among other things, wants to be liked. And I think he could easily work with a Democratic majority to spend even more money. So I think the prospects <laughs> for a balanced budget are receding, even as the polls come in. So do you think the, the problems with Tesla um, uh, spread over to the other FANG companies? I'm thinking about Amazon. I mean, in terms of Schumpeter's concept of creative destruction, there's probably no company uh, in the history of the United States that's uh, uh, cre- created more destruction than, uh, than, than Amazon. Should the government regulate Amazon, Facebook, and Google? Well, I guess these companies ought to uh, comply with the laws of the land. I don't, I don't think that uh, uh, they deserve to be regulated because they are big or because they are successful. Um, uh, the marketplace with regard to Amazon has certainly spoken. I mean, uh, people profess to love their neighborhood bookstore, but uh, notice how few of them patronize said place if it exists. Um, you know, Tesla is, um, is not exactly the company you asked about, but... Uh, these, these, these magnificent, speculative, deadline-ignoring, capital-consuming outfits have a way of, of, um, of stopping themselves. I mean, uh, 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 Tesla takes its name from uh, Nikola Tesla, who's a Serbian immigrant uh, who devised the AC currency-generating regime and who died broke in a hotel room in New York City in 1943. Um, Thomas Edison uh, died not broke. He was in funds, but he didn't have the $12 million the newspaper said he had. He died in 1931. He died with about a million dollars. Edison sold his stock to invest in something called the New Jersey and Pennsylvania Compacting Works, which was meant to make New Jersey iron ore competitive with the iron ore of the Mesabi Range through some electromagnetic device that Thomas Edison almost poured his last penny into, which ultimately failed. I mean, uh, uh, Elon Musk, to me, is the, is, the, is the archetype, is the epitome of the romantic, deadline-neglecting, profit-scoffing-at entrepreneur who will not die rich. Uh, Jeff Bezos, I see, has assembled around himself an annual salon of futurists and uh, he is going to, uh, in addition to making the world's uh, eternal clock, and um, I think he too is going to Mars. Uh, but you can see, I mean, ah, I'll conclude this. What do Alexander the Great, Napoleon, and Hitler have in common? They didn't actually do it, right? They didn't actually conquer everything. I think the same thing holds true, in, but to a greater extent, in business. And I think that uh, uh, these tides uh, come in, they go out. And even the greatest businesses finally um, uh, uh, come down to more or less lifelike size. Okay, we're at the point of conclusion here. And I want to make sure that this audience gets the full thrust of what you're thinking. We've been talking about some major issues in the credit area. And what you're saying is, if I interpret you correctly, is the United States is facing some very powerful headwinds. The debt is rising. The people who are purchasing the debt is de- are declining. Um, interest rates are likely to go up. The stock market is on 
is focusing on a number of companies that are very China, second largest economy in the world, is beset by debt and is in a position where one day that debt is going to come down hard on them. So that the future has a number of perils in it which are not being discounted properly by the equity market. And there are significant dangers ahead which should ruin the weekend of everybody in this room. <laughs> Is that a fair assessment of your thinking? Yes, I sound, I sound pretty gloomy, Byron. Yes. <laughs> Byron, you've done an excellent job in summarizing a, a pretty uh, antisocial point of view, and I want to thank you for that. <laughs> Okay. That is, that is, in fact, a fair one. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.